Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws the lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Pratchy Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. And guess what? It's Tuesday. Tuesday! It's wow. so much better than Friday. Way better. Way better to get the politics news on <laughs> yeah. a Tuesday than a freaking Friday. Even though Friday is the day Trump loves to make all of his insane announcements. That's true. But now we can talk. Now we aren't going to miss them in the podcast. We're going to have three days to absorb them and then talk about them. Right. Which is exactly when everyone else is talking about him and thinking about them. Right. But by the time Friday comes around, you're like, God damn it. I want. Yeah, I'm going to. I want like one. Yeah. So on Sunday night, we get to report on Sunday news and it's kind of new. It's like a day old. We're recording on Monday. Um, But so on Sunday night. Steve Bannon crawled out of his crypt and did an interview with 60 Minutes in which he called Trump's decision to fire James Comey the biggest mistake in modern political history. Someone said to me that you described the firing of James Comey. You're a student of history as the biggest mistake in political history. That would be probably that would probably be too bombastic even for me, but maybe modern political history. So the firing of James Comey was the biggest mistake in modern political history. If you're saying that that's associated with me, then I'll I'll leave it at that. But that's not all he did. He did so much more. First of all, we saw that he has some sort of like art piece. That's that don't tread on me sign. But it's made out of shiplap, which is like boards of wood which is such a good combination of uh, like NRA tackiness and Chip and Joanna Gaines tackiness. And I really feel like he's appealing to such a broad swath of Republicans with that sign. (laughs) He also talked about growing up in an integrated school system, which congratulations, good for him. (laughs) I'm glad that this is a point of pride. From decades ago, that was already very like late. Yeah. (laughs) Also, if you watched the interview, you saw that his eyes were extremely red. And I don't know how you get that unless you're farting on your own pillow. It <laughs> seems like he has, like, pink eye in both of his eyes. Do you see that? Yeah. He just looks so unwell. But he always, he always sort of looks like that. I know, but it was just, it was just more. It was, it was sustained was for the, so long you never right, hear him talk. This is the longest time we've seen him sitting. This is probably why he made such few appearances. Right. Because he knows his presence is unnerving. Wait, did you also see his outfit? And then no, I'll he stop. wasn't paying attention to his outfit. I don't want to outfit James Bannon, except I'm about to. He was Do wearing it. a black button-up shirt covered in a black button-up shirt. Oh, that's right. I covered didn't... in a black blazer. I didn't <laughs> notice how ridiculous that was. I was so distracted by his ashen face. <laughs> that you didn't notice his that outfit. That I didn't notice his outfit. <laughs> um... This week on the episode, we're going to talk to Lizia Dalla. She works in communications at an immigration reform lobbying company, and she also is an undocumented immigrant who's done a few great TED Talks, and she wrote a recent op-ed for the Washington Post about how she discovered that she was undocumented when she was in college. It was really shocking when I got a letter in the mail that basically told me that I wasn't supposed to be here, and that was the moment that sort of defined the before and after of my life. But first, our week in weenies. All right. First up this week, we've got Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. This past Thursday, 
Betsy DeVos gave a very long, frustrating speech on Title IX and the protections for sexual assault survivors. Survivors, victims of a lack of due process, and campus administrators have all told me that the current approach does a disservice to everyone involved. So basically in this very long-winded speech, uh, Betsy DeVos devoted like 20 minutes to talking about fairness uh, towards basically the accused and didn't spend nearly enough time talking about the actual people she's supposed to be protecting as an education secretary, victims of rape. And basically what Betsy DeVos is doing is calling for an overhaul of the sexual assault protections um, that the Obama era ushered in. The department has said that they're basically too strong and too severe and overreactive. And so they're scrapping it, but they're not replacing it with anything yet. They're just scrapping it and opening this up to public comments, except that the education department is already open to public comments. So also, (laughs) does she know what public comments is? Like as internet writers, we are so familiar with public comment and it comes from People, let's just say like the people who are most enthusiastic about public comments are also the most enthusiastic about like defending people accused of sexual assault, (laughs) right? Pretty much. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, this is what's going to happen. Not to make generalizations about commenters. (laughs) (laughs) We would never do such a thing. Right. They're so unique and diverse. Yeah. In their opinions. Um, So Betsy DeVos is making college campuses safer for rapists. Great. You know, like generally there are two sides to every argument, except for when the argument is requires one to take a side of people who have been raped and people accused of rape. And then also, like, what is it with this administration? First, there are both sides to not like Nazism. They not all Nazis, not all rapists. Not all Nazis, not all rapists. (laughs) Not all white men. Not all oil companies. (laughs) Not all evil people. Not all evil people. (laughs) Speaking of evil people and oil companies, our second meanie is Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt, who is the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, the person in charge of the environment in the United States, says that it is insensitive to the people of Florida to talk about climate change as Hurricane Irma descends upon the state. Let me read the quote. To have any kind of focus on the cause and effect of the storm versus helping people or actually facing the effect of the storm is misplaced. What we need to focus on is access to clean water, addressing these areas of Superfund activities that may cause an attack on water, these issues of access to fuel. Those are the things so important to citizens of Florida right now. And to discuss the cause and effect of these storms, there's the place and time to do that, and it's not now. And it's not now. Stassa <laughs> Edwards, who has been on the podcast, who works at, she's a writer at Jezebel, wrote in her article about this. She lives in Miami and she was writing this when she was in her parents' house in Broward County. And she said, I would quite like to talk about the effects of the rising ocean temperatures in a region that houses millions of people. And she writes about it very powerfully. But like, if I was living in Florida, I'd be like, yeah, please let's, talk about it talk so about it doesn't it. happen again in <laughs> A year or a month. Or in the case of freaking three days apart. Right. Or like every single, yeah, hurricane this summer. God, Scott Pruitt is so stupid. He's a, he just literally is a parody of what he's, of what Trump wanted him to be. Him and every single other person in his administration. Playing their role so well. It's, I bet Donald Trump is happy with them, except he's not. He's furious at everyone all the time. I don't know what to say. 
So our third set of weenies for the week is Congressman Matt Gates and Ted Yoho of Florida. They were among the 90 Republicans, all Republicans, who voted no against the disaster relief funding measure, $15 billion to fund hurricane relief and raise the debt ceiling in the short term. And they voted no. And of course, all the people who voted no were Republican. Um, But it's especially heinous that these two Republicans voted no, considering that they are from Florida. But they're from parts of Florida that weren't going to get hit as hard. Oh, of of (laughs) course. So they're like. And and here is their logic. And it's incredible to me. So this is what Ted Yoho said on his no vote. Quote, snaking in a debt ceiling increase with funding for victims and communities affected is immoral and reflective of broken leadership in Washington, said the guy who votes no on disaster relief. I do not think it is wise to extend our borrowing limit without mandatory spending reforms. If this was a clean measure that focused on those affected by Hurricane Harvey, I would have proudly voted for it. I mean, it takes a special kind of dickhole to be like, I prioritize the spending limit over hundreds of thousands of people who are going to be like clobbered and have their lives ruined by a hurricane. And somebody who raises like principle in the name of like morals, basically, is what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, he calls like, it immoral. No, I'm going to be the cool head when all these stupid people are busy worrying about people dying. I'm going to worry about the spending limit. It's like standing out in front of a sh- shelter. You'll see Matt Gates being like, wait, you can come in if you're going to vote no against the debt ceiling. Right. This is the it's other like, thing. It's like how Betsy DeVos, like, if you're on the side of the uh, of the accused rapists, you're wrong. If you're on the side of fiscal concerns over saving lives in a hurricane, like you're probably on the wrong side too. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to like make a generalization. <laughs> Dick of the Week is Trump's DACA repeal. So last week, Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump, Donald Trump via Jeff Sessions, announced that they were rescinding DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. It gives protection to, so far, 790,000 Undocumented people who are brought to the U.S. as children receive protections under DACA. It requires them to register with the government, and then they get a temporary work permit. But Jeff Sessions and Trump gave Congress six months to figure out some kind of replacement or solution to this thing, which they also just took away. And so joining us is Lizia Dalla, who works in communications at Forward.us. She immigrated to Texas from Canada in 1996 when she was six years old. Her family entered the United States legally and tried multiple times to secure permanent residency, but their application stalled after an attorney filed their paperwork late, and again after an employer sponsoring them sold his business, requiring the family to restart the entire application process. She's done a few great TED Talks and written a recent op-ed for the Washington Post about her experiences as an undocumented immigrant. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood and when you moved to the U.S.? 
So my family and I moved to uh, Texas from Canada in 1996. Uh, we came legally on a visa. And because of that, I always grew up having a social security number. And uh, later on, I, I grew up with a driver's license. And so my childhood is pretty all American. People expect to hear something that is like foreign or like they expect to hear about this incredible journey of crossing, you know, through the border. And my experience was it, it was nothing like that, right? And my family and I came on a plane and I had the most Texas upbringing of any kind. I mean, when I think of my childhood, I think of brisket and breakfast tacos. And I think of Selena, the Tejano star. And I spent a lot of time learning how to square dance in elementary school. I played recreational basketball and soccer. I played the cello. I was a Girl Scout. I mean, it was so American in the sense that to me, it, it sounds kind of boring because it sounds like everyone else's childhood. I actually didn't know that I was undocumented until my junior year of college when I got a letter in the mail from the Department of Homeland Security. And it was a notice to appear in immigration court, which is basically the first step in the deportation process. I was completely blindsided because, as I had mentioned, I had always had a social security number and a driver's license. I had the ability to, to work legally for a period of time in high school. I worked at the local grocery store as a cashier. So it was really shocking when I got a letter in the mail that basically told me that I wasn't supposed to be here. And that was the moment that sort of defined the before and after of my life, right? I think a lot of people have that one defining moment that sort of changes the trajectory of their entire life. And for me, it was getting that letter and and learning that I had somewhere along the way fallen out of status. So you learned in this really, I mean, shocking way that you're an undocumented immigrant. What happened next? And when was this in relation to DACA? And when did you become a DACA recipient? So I was a junior in college, I went to Northwestern, I was studying journalism when I found out that I was undocumented. And I spent the next year and a half up until graduation, totally terrified. I had taken out so much money in student loans. I had never planned to fall out of status. I had never planned to be undocumented. Fortunately, on my college graduation day, about a year and a half after I had found out about my status, the DACA program was announced. And the DACA program basically says that if you meet certain criteria, including passing a background check, getting your fingerprints taken, meeting certain education or military requirements, meeting certain residency requirements, um, and if you pay a fee, then you can earn a two-year temporary reprieve from deportation and a, a temporary renewable work permit. And so shortly after graduation, I was able to get a work permit and because of that, my life changed dramatically. I was able to get a full-time job um, and pay off my student loans. I was able to buy a home. I bought a car. I was able to eventually move from Texas to Washington, D.C., where I work today for an immigrant advocacy organization. Can you tell us what it was like to kind of hear the build-up to Trump and Jeff Sessions' announcement and what it was like to actually hear that DACA would be, I guess, kind of confusingly rescinded? It's just been really, really interesting. Part of why I decided to be more vocal about my experiences as an immigrant is just because I had a really tough time connecting the stories that I was hearing in the media about immigrants to my own life experiences. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. 
they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Quick way to create jobs in America is to remove those illegal aliens from our communities. There were things, so many things that I had heard that were just absolutely not true. Why is it that different ethnicities always put American second? Many of the immigrants that I know um, are very well assimilated into American life. I have to pay IRS taxes when I'm due. I mean, and these people are, 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 are not paying any of those. They speak English. They're pursuing higher education. Many of them own jobs, um, roughly 6% of DACA recipients are entrepreneurs, that we are job creators, we are business owners. So for me, the announcement was actually pretty tough to hear because, I mean, the, the, there was there were some very interesting twists that Jeff Sessions made. And it's no secret that he has a track record that isn't necessarily the most supportive towards the immigrant community. A lot of them are teachers who are educating American youth. A lot of them are nurses who get up every morning to take care of the sick and the elderly. A lot of them are engineers and architects. Some of them are even serving in the military. So we do a lot of different things and we contribute in so many different ways. So it's always pretty incredible to, to for me to hear someone say the exact opposite. Um, I think it's really dishonest and it's disingenuous and um, they are living in a reality that is completely warped and different from what is truly happening on the ground in the U.S. So Trump has said that the fate of DACA is now with Congress and he's given he, what he says is a six month window. Can you tell me what you're expecting Congress to do and basically what this rescission of DACA means? Essentially what the announcement was is that Anyone who has a work permit that expires on or before March 5th, 2018, has the ability to apply for a renewal, but they must submit their renewal applications within the next 30 days. Unfortunately, my DACA expires on May 5th, so I'm kind of out of luck. I, there's no way for me to renew or extend my DACA status. And so what will happen is on May 6th, I will become a priority for deportation and I will no longer have the ability to work in the United States. Um, there are a lot of people who are very traumatized by this decision because the one of the major problems is that once the, when this announcement was made, there was no plan that was simultaneously implemented to ensure that these people can continue contributing here for a permanent period of time. So in terms of the announcement, um, I also want to be really clear that Congress doesn't have six months to act because people will fall out of status starting March 6th. And when you pass a piece of legislation, you have to think through time to implement it. So for example, one of the big pieces of legislation that could allow DREAMers to continue contributing here permanently is the DREAM Act. And it's a bipartisan bill that was introduced by Senators Durbin and Senator Graham back in July. And so what it says is basically if DREAMers go through uh, an application process, including a background check, if they pay a fine, then they would get temporary protect, basically a temporary form of um, protected status. And then ultimately 13 years down the line, they would be able to come full U.S. citizens. When the DREAM Act is passed, there needs to be time allotted to implement it, meaning the Department of Homeland Security has to create an application. Dreamers have to hire an attorney. 
Dreamers have to collect all the paperwork. They have to file for their permanent residency, and then they have to wait for the Department of Homeland Security to notify them of acceptance. And that is a months-long process in and of itself. And so if Congress doesn't both pass the DREAM Act and roll out full implementation of that program by March 6th, people will start to fall out of status. And we've done a lot of work on the back end looking at the numbers of what this would actually look like. And if that isn't passed, 1,400 people will be pulled out of the American workforce and lose their DACA protections every single business day for the next two years. So economically, what this looks like is a GDP hit of somewhere around $460 billion for the U.S. economy over the next 10 years. But even beyond that, this is about real people, right? These are real humans who came to the U.S. as children. We were told that if we worked really hard, if we stayed out of trouble, if we were good students, if we pursued higher education, that we could be anything in this country. I mean, that's what the American dream is all about. And that's exactly what we did. And so it's really difficult, I think, to look at the federal government when they offered us the opportunity to come out of the shadows, to do things the right way by filling out an application, to register with the government, and to now have the program eliminated really feels like the rug is being pulled out from under us. I mean, this is an impossible way to live. I can't really imagine. Do you, are you making any plans? Do you have any, I don't know, idea what you're going to do, what's going to happen? It's really hard to plan for a future that is so uncertain and so temporary in so many ways. For me in particular, I wanted to, I've always wanted to go to law school, but DACA is only good for two years at a time and law school is three years. There's so many questions I think that people have and so many things that people want to do that are really restrained because of our immigration status. And it's a status that I in particular didn't knowingly walk into. I don't think anybody wants to be undocumented. It's, it's a really tough life. It's not something I would wish on anyone. You know, you're constantly looking over your shoulder and avoiding any type of interaction with the police, which is pretty detrimental when you consider that many people who are undocumented don't call the police when their house get, gets robbed because they're too scared. They do their best to really stay under the radar. And that's why a lot of undocumented people suffer things like wage theft and abuse in the workplace. And some of them uh, suffer through domestic violence because they are in a relationship with somebody who's threatening to call immigration on them at all times. I mean, it's it's really terrible. And uh, this is a reality that a lot of people live every single day. You know, undocumented immigrants on average have lived in the United States for a period of 14 years. We have homes here. We have cars here. We work and contribute to the economy. We pay taxes. And DACA recipients in particular are a unique group because we went to elementary school here. We went to middle school here. We went to high school here. Many of us went to college here. We have good paying jobs that allow us to pay property taxes and allow us to just give back to our community in so many ways. It makes sense to keep them here, not only economically, but I think turning them away is just, it's morally wrong for so many reasons. What can people do to help in this really bleak situation? Is there anything that you know, everyday people can be doing? Is there anything that legislators are doing that we can support? Well, the thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of the American public 
support streamers. I mean, this is without a doubt. People recognize that we are real humans and that there are 800,000 lives at stake. I would encourage people to continue to put pressure on their members of Congress to pass the DREAM Act and bring that bill out for a vote. You can also go to dreamers.forward.us, which is a website that has tons of uh, stories of DACA recipients. It, it explains um, how DACA has been transformative, not only for them, but for the millions of Americans that live with them and go to school with them and work with them every single day. And you can share those stories on social media, either Facebook or Twitter, using the hashtags, um, hashtag dreamers or hashtag dream act. It's pretty heartbreaking when you hear these stories. You probably remember that a few months ago, there was a man who uh, lived in Kansas City who was shot and killed um, in a bar in a hate crime. He was here on an H-1B visa and his wife's status was dependent on his. And when he died, it nullified her status and she was facing deportation because of it. I mean, it's like, it's crazy to me just how little we have done to modernize the immigration system over the past few decades. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on a very basic level. I mean, literally breaking down not only what the DACA program is, but explaining to people like, how how do, how do you fall out of status? How is it possible that we have people who've been in this country for 30 years who have lived with that type of uncertainty every single day? I mean, we were founded on the idea that if you work really hard and if you sacrifice, that you could do great things and that we would welcome you with open arms. And so that's what the immigration reform movement is about. It's about preserving those values as a nation that has long served as a refuge to people who are in need and to people who make that promise that if they come here, that they are going to appreciate the opportunities that this country provides them. Lizia, thank you so much for your work and thanks for talking to us about your experiences. Thanks for having me. time for the best segment of our show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we talk about how we're handling the dicks. My how to handle this week is, I mean, I just got a new possession, a Nutribullet, which is a very powerful (laughs) blender. However, it takes itself very seriously, the Nutribullet does. It takes itself very seriously. Yes, the Nutribullet. (laughs) Okay. It does not call itself a blender. It calls itself a nutrition extractor. And the instruction manual mm-hmm. is the craziest shit I've ever read, other than like politics. But, um, okay, here are some excerpts. One of them is, congratulations on your new lease on life. By the time you finish reading this paragraph, four Americans will have had a heart attack and another four will have had a stroke <laughs> or heart failure. Whoa. Oh my God. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> okay, the next one is, am I healthy? And then it's like asking yourself questions. And then it says, do I feel great? Do I feel blah, blah, blah? And then it says, or do I feel fat, tired, miserable, (laughs) sick, or just blah? It's so rude. Okay, here's more. I have more. Hold on. Just a couple. (laughs) And then one question is, 
with no context. Would you rather eat one eighth cup of nutrient extracted flaxseed in a Nutriblast or 60 cups of broccoli or 100 pieces of bread? <laughs> Why are you asking me that? I don't know. I don't understand. <laughs> what is the question here? The next, a next page says, nothing feels as good as feeling good. Right? <laughs> can't, can't argue with that, can't argue, actually. Can't argue with that. Another header is, are you eating your food? <laughs> yes. The last one I want to read is, please note if you are taking any medication, especially cholesterol-lowering medication, blood thinners, blood pressure drugs, tranquilizers, or antidepressants, please check with your doctor before consuming any of the recipes. <laughs> <laughs> any other recipes, just anything. You're not allowed like to eat a smoothie <laughs> if you're on Zoloft. <laughs> I just, I really laugh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Isn't that the craziest thing you ever heard? <laughs> so my how to handle the dicks is having this blender, but also the, the manual. <laughs> Joanna, I don't think I could top that. There's just no way. <laughs> I mean, if you guys really want to handle the dicks, Obtain a Nutribullet <laughs> and then live the Nutribullet life. I have a blender, I guess, a blender related how to handle. Do you have a blender? No. My boyfriend <laughs> does, and he made champagne smoothies. What is in that? It's literally, it's, well, it's Prosecco and then fruit, and that's it. <laughs> and like ice? Yeah. That sounds great. It's delicious. No, it's frozen fruit, so that like serves Yeah, so it's ice. like, oh. Yeah. And was it very good? It was very Can good. Can you give us like a very quick recipe? That is literally the recipe. So you like pour a bottle of Prosecco into a blender and then you pour well, you a don't bag pour, of like, Prosecco the whole, Yeah. He, does, he has like single ser- servings, what I guess. What fruit is in it? Um, I chose the very superior strawberry and he chose mango. Oh, this weekend I had mango juice and Prosecco. <gasps> and it was so good. That's Did you make it in the Nutribullet? <laughs> no, I just made it in a glass. Oh. Nothing was solid. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. The mango juice came in a bottle. <laughs> It's lovely. We're doing it. <laughs> we're like discovering new concoctions. It's lovely. But it, yeah, good combination. That sounds good. I guess we can leave our listeners with one piece of um, wisdom. And it's more of a question than a statement. And the question is, are you eating your food? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I, actually, I actually fell over. I was laughing so that hard. Nice. I fell over. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you to our guest, Lizia Dalla. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Tuesday. Yes. <laughs> and honestly, who knows? Who could say what the world <laughs> will look like say? then? <laughs>